Father, we thank you for this time tonight, for the freedom that we have in this country to come to the Word of God. And we remember those Christians elsewhere in this world tonight who cannot assemble freely and do not have the freedom that we enjoy. We ask that your Holy Spirit take advantage of this time to illuminate our hearts, that we may come to a deeper understanding of your program down through history and have an appreciation for your edification and maturing of the church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been going through the history of the church in a very abbreviated way, and tonight we're going to move on and hopefully get it in the last section. We won't exactly finish tonight, but we will come close to it. And um, kind of to summarize, we know that the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost and set up the church, and the church age is going uh, on for, so far, for at least 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years. And the Holy Spirit's been busy during that time teaching the church at certain key truths. And it's really interesting to study church history and watch the sequence of issues that have come up. And when you do a diagram of these issues that come up, it turns out that they mirror a systematic theology. It's sort of interesting. It just kind of happens that way in that the early centuries, the issue, of course, started out with the authority. And so you have the canon of Scripture uh, there. That's the first issue, because this is the issue of authority. You can't go anywhere in theology without revelation. So clearly, this canon had to be developed, and the issue of authority settled, that that was the apostolic corpus. Then we have the theology, the doctrine of the Trinity, and who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Then we came into the Middle Ages, and toward the end of the Middle Ages, the issue of what did Jesus do on the cross? And so we have Anselm. And you remember that the issue there, over against heretics, was that did Jesus on the cross actually do something on the cross, or was the cross merely uh, a martyr's death uh, signifying uh, loyalty to a cause, that kind of thing. In other words, was the cross something that was just stimulate a subjective emotional response, or was there something that actually was transacted on the cross? And clearly, the satisfaction theory, the satisfaction approach that Jesus Christ objectively did something on the cross and sins were uh, forgiven. Sins can be forgiven on the basis of that atonement. Then we came down to the Reformation and the issue there was the issue of how do we receive the grace that comes from that cross to us. And that is on page 95 and those receiving the benefits of the cross. And during this time, whereas most of the church in the West accepted uh, the satisfaction approach to the cross, that is, the cross objectively did something, but what happened was that whereas people would say that the cross is an expression of God's grace toward us and forgiveness toward us, there was no 
settled view about how that grace came to us. In other words, do you get all the benefits of the cross, some of the benefits of the cross, the benefits of the cross, what do they do for you? Do they cleanse you from past sins, or do they cleanse you from past, present, and future sins? And if they cleanse from past, present, and future sins, then what motivation is there to live a godly life? And those are the issues that came up in, during the Reformation period. So we worked our way through that, and um, we found, came to, on page 97, uh, we're talking here about how the church was forced uh, in about 1500 to 1600, the issue separated the Western church. And that was the issue of how God's grace comes to man through the cross. Catholics and Protestants agreed on the fact that something was done on the cross, but because in Roman Catholic theology, sin was not as profoundly developed, the doctrine of sin, ironically, because you normally think it would have been, but it really wasn't as far as a sin nature. For example, the idea of baptism in Roman Catholic theology is that it removes original sin. And that what happens is that you have post-baptismal sins that have to be dealt with. And that's penance and so on. Those are the ways that, that those post-salvation sins are taken care of. But as far as the deep Calvinist Reformation emphasis on the sin nature, you don't find too much of that in Roman Catholic theology. So there's a, there's a, a bunch of issues that are tied in here to this. It's not just an issue of the sacraments. It's not just an issue of what constitutes faith, but it's an issue of what is sin, um, how deeply does sin permeate the human soul, those issues. All of that was, was the battleground. On page 97, you'll notice in the second paragraph there, I give you um, the, the conflict that Luther faced. And you can tell from the two titles of the book what was the issue between him and uh, another one of his uh, Protestants called Erasmus. Luther's book was The Bondage of the Will. Erasmus was The Freedom of the Will. And that was the debate that Luther fought. Calvin agreed with Luther. Most Reformed people agree that sin includes the will. Now, they're not saying that the will is destroyed. They're simply saying that the will is free to sin. Or, put more bluntly, everyone can go to hell in their own way, just choosing what road you want to travel. You have a right to choose the roads. But there's no inclination, apart from God's grace, there's no inclination in our hearts to return to the Lord any more than there was an inclination in Adam and Eve's heart to return to the Lord unless the Lord in the garden called out and, and he initiated the conversation. So that was the, the argument that was going on there. And if you also see that paragraph, it says, um, the sacraments Luther held are only symbols through which the word of God works. They witness to man subjectively but have no objective function of mediating God's saving grace. And that was the other issue that came up. It's because the, the issue of the ordinances or the sacraments. That became a big issue. And it was, interestingly, as a result of this debate, what we call modern Roman Catholic theology gelled. 
If you'll notice the next paragraph, that council that I mentioned there, the Council of Trent, is where Catholic theology was really firmed up. So what we call Roman Catholic theology, 95% of it was fixed there in that council. The council, notice the dates on that council. They come after or before Luther. They come after Luther. So it's a reaction by the church that didn't go along with Luther and Calvin to shuck those Protestant reformers. So here's where the church took a hard-nosed line, and I give you a quote from the Trentin... This is, by the way, called the Tridentine Theology. And I give you a quote there, and the, the quote lets you see what was going on. If anyone denies that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is conferred in baptism, the guilt of original sin is remitted, that is, anybody denies that the guilt of original sin is remitted through baptism, or even asserts that the whole of that which is true and the proper nature of sin is not taken away, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. So there's the Tridentine doctrine, the fact that God's grace comes through the sacrament of baptism, and it's baptism that removes the, uh, the original sin. And that's why after that Tridentine quote, I have the next sentence, after the sacrament of baptism, that which is said to regenerate, the child is left in a state of innocence with a free will that for some reason still chooses sin. And that's the problem that everyone who denies the universality of sin or the, what the Protestants call total depravity always have a problem with explaining the, the ubiquity of sin. Why is sin ubiquitous? I mean, what's the deal? Why is it you never have to train a kid how to be bad? They naturally do that. There's something wrong here. There's something abnormally wrong with everybody, including children. And the something that is wrong is that fact that we have a sin nature. It's not just that we commit personal sins. So really, there are three areas of sin. And we want to remember these because people think only of one of these, usually. There's one that everybody thinks about, and that's personal sin. That's acts of sin, thoughts of sin, choices, that sort of thing. And most people say, oh, okay, I agree with that, personal sin. Problem is, there's two other kinds of sin that are involved. And we want to turn to Romans chapter 5 to see these, because these, are, these other areas of sin are also involved, and when you see these, it makes the work of Jesus Christ a lot more profound. So we have personal sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3. So clearly we have personal sin, and, and most people don't argue about that. But we also have some other kind of sin. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread upon all men, because all have sinned. Notice, past tense on the verb sinned, end of verse 12. All have sinned. Now, here's the debate. If everybody physically dies because they have sinned, then it follows, since infants die, that infants too have sinned. Well, when did they sin? 
when is this verb happening that says all sin in verse 12? Does it happen the moment you take your first breath? Does it happen after you've lived your life for a while? Or is there something else involved? Well, there's something else involved. Verse 13. For until, law, until the law, that is, until the law of Moses wasn't given until 1440 B.C. or thereabouts, until that law, and by the way, until that law includes the period of Adam, Methuselah, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, includes a lot of people. For until the law, sin was in the world. And it's clear that sin was in the world. But, says Paul, sin is not credited when there is no law. In other words, it has to be a violation of some standard. And the law here, he's talking about the Torah, the Torah law. But he says that, so you can't attribute physical death because it's a punishment under the Torah. It has to be a punishment under some other law than the Torah. Because there wasn't any law before the Torah, in the sense of the Torah. Now, there was a moral law that God revealed through Abraham and so on. So then he concludes in verse 14, but death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him to come. So what he's saying is that because of the ubiquity of death, there has to be a cause behind all death. And the cause behind all death is that we have blamed physical death is a sentence upon all of us because we sin. Well, how did we sin? Now, you go on and the argument basically argues that we sinned in Adam. Adam is a representative, a federal head of the human race. And we are all under that, and we call that imputed sin. That is, sin that is credited to our account because we are in Adam, who is a figure of him to come. Now, people say imputed sin is unfair. Well, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have sinned. Well, come, you know. Um, and people are, look at imputed sin, and they say it's unfair. But if you notice... Adam is the likeness of one who shall come. And that who shall come is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the federal headship of being in Adam that everybody says is unfair turns out to be a blessing. Because being in Adam, Adam is the federal head. That structure of being in a federal head over a human race, that's the reason why Jesus Christ righteousness can also be credited to our account. <clears throat> because we didn't obey perfectly either, but we're credited with that righteousness. We weren't physically in the Garden of Eden, but we're credited with that sin. So if the sin is unfair in the case of Adam's sin being credited to our account, then it's unfair for Jesus' righteousness to be credited to our account. Those are similar structures. And this is not easy stuff. People have debated this down through church history. This is, this is heavy theology here. But the Bible insists there is a unity to the human race that goes beyond biological unity. Every one of us carries the DNA of Adam. Notice I said Adam. I didn't say Adam and Eve. Why didn't I say Adam and Eve? Because Eve's DNA came from Adam. 
Eve was created in a special way. People say, oh, it was just a little mythical story. No, no, no. Genesis chapter 2 and the story of the creation of Eve is meant to be literally true. That the woman's genetic makeup was taken out of Adam so that both male and female together are under that one unified head, Adam. That, folks, is the reason why there's a debate today over general gender-neutral Bible translations. Yes, it's true technically that the word mankind means men and women. You know, everybody that sort of knows English um, knows that that word mankind includes male and female. But for some strange reason in our generation, we've got to say it explicitly. So, what other generations knew intuitively, we have to get out and start dotting I's and crossing the T's and say we can't translate mankind, mankind, because some people might think that women aren't in there. So now we have to change the translation and make it men and women, just so everybody understands what mankind means. And technically, from a translator's point of view, that seems nice. You know, you've got semantic equivalency. Hey, no problem. But it's not just a technical question here. This issue of being in Adam is involved in this debate. The reason historically in the English language the word mankind came about is coming off the Bible. The English language as we know it has been influenced by the King James translation and the word mankind is a direct reference to Genesis 1. That noun M-A-N-K-I-N-D. Where you suppose K-I-N-D came from? What does it say in Genesis? Everything was created after their kind. And what is man in that sense, in the word mankind? It's a reference to the man in Genesis 1, Adam. So all that theological richness is embedded in that way of talking. So when you hear all the little debates about male and female, and yeah, it's semantically equivalent. You could argue that. If you had a computer translating it, a theologically ignorant computer, it would go ahead and make those semantic equivalences. But to do that evacuates the richness behind these words. And so it is your traditional translations that support the traditional rendering in English, mankind. And... Until our generation, everybody understood that. But, you know, I don't know. Something's wrong today, I guess. Personal. Personal sin and imputed sin. But that's not all. There's also sin nature. So in chapter 7, Paul deals with that one. So we have personal sin, we have imputed sin, and we have what we call inherent sin. And you see, the Lord Jesus Christ has to deal with all three of these. The salvation package has to cope with all three kinds of sin. And so, he talks about verse 7. What shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to known sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the Lord said not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. See in verse 8. The subject of the verb produce is a noun, and it is sin. Now, that sin there isn't imputed sin, and that sin there isn't personal sin. That is a sin power 
that is in us. And that's inherent sin. So all three of these are involved. And this is why when you deal with sacraments or you deal with the finished work of Christ, you deal with the work of Christ, what is done, to discuss those subjects presumes that you have already understood the sin subject. And if the sin isn't clearly defined, then the discussion of the work of Christ gets all foggy. So if you're thinking, for example, as in, happens sometimes in, in, in the Reformation debates, if you think only in terms of personal sin, then you come up with some screwy ideas. Because now you're talking about, as it says here in, on page 97, the quote from Trent. If anyone denies that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is conferred in baptism, the guilt of original sin is remitted, or even asserts that the whole of that which has been true in proper nature of sin is not taken away, let him be anathema. Well, now, we all know that the men who wrote that paragraph at the Council of Trent certainly weren't teaching perfectionism. I mean, they weren't that far out. So when it, you see that sentence, the whole of that which has been the true and proper nature of sin is, is, take, is not taken away by baptism, what they, they are referring to this, personal sin. And of course, they, they're talking too a little bit about the imputed sin, the credit, and so on. But they, they, it's a little fog, foggy, fuzzy, foggy there. It's personal sin. And these other two get very ill-defined. It's not handled well. And you can go back and you can read these documents. And when you read them, you go, wait a minute, what are these guys talking about? Are they talking about imputed sin, inherent sin, or personal sin? And you start asking those questions and it's not clear when you're reading them. Which means that they probably weren't clear either. And that was one of the issues that came out of the Reformation. Okay. At the bottom of page 97, you'll see one of the results of all this. In Tridentine theology, or Trentine theology, views forgiveness as applying only to past sins, plural, not past, present, and future sins as a package deal. In other words, in time, the atonement of Christ carries you up to the present, not into the future. Now, there's the difference. In the Protestant gospel of Luther and Calvin and the people of the Reformation, salvation was a packaged deal. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross purged sins, past, present, and future. And that's how why they talked about justification as a completed thing. See, out of this, the Protestant position is justification is a point in time. In Roman Catholic theology, they use the word justification, but what they mean is baptism, penance, 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 maybe extreme unction, and so on throughout the life. So they use the word justification, but they do not mean the same as the Protestant meant by the word. And unfortunately, they didn't coin a new word. So when you hear somebody, say, on the Roman Catholic side of the issue, they talk about, well, I believe in salvation by grace. They can literally say that, of course. Yeah, they believe in salvation by grace. They believe in justification. 
But when they, but to get into the content of what they mean when they use the word, they don't mean what Luther and Calvin meant by it. So yet you kind of it gets greasy in the conversations because we use, both sides are using the same word, but both sides don't mean the same thing. So they're talking by one another oftentimes in discussions. Now, the last sentence on page 97 is where the rubber meets the road in the Middle Ages and, and beyond, especially with, with the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent retained full organizational control over dispensing Christ's meritorious work on the cross in the Roman Church. In other words, if the sacraments are the means through which this grace comes to man, and it's the church that controls the sacraments, guess who's in charge of salvation? This is where Roman Catholicism is actually a church state. And its political power and impact down through the centuries has been because of this right here. This is the core of the power. It's not papal infallibility. Papal infallibility wasn't declared until a little over 100 years ago. That may shock some people, but, but infallibility is a doctrine that was not articulated until the mid-1900, in the 19th century. So the power of Catholicism has been always in the power to control the channels of grace and the power politically and socially and religiously to dominate that thing. I'll give you an example. That's happening right here to a couple in our congregation. We have a person, one person's uh, uh, marrying a person of Catholic background, Roman Catholic background. The person of Roman Catholic background comes from a home of a devout Roman Catholic parents. And the Roman Catholic parents are very upset by what's happening here. Because to them, believing this scheme, what's one of the sacraments? Marriage. There are seven sacraments, and marriage is one of them. And for a, for a marriage to occur outside of a priest and the blessing of the church, it's like we would think of somebody out of fellowship and, and lost. So you can understand the pain of the parents who are devout Roman Catholics trying to think this through. Here's their child getting married to this Protestant and no sacrament, no priest, nothing. Well, what kind of a marriage is that going to be, they think? So we have to understand the mentality of what's going on here and why these conflicts arise and can become very, very disruptive and not easy to deal with because we're dealing with two completely different systems of approaching this matter. So, continuing now. We're going to come back to the sacraments in a little bit. But I want to introduce that to you because this all came down, this is the leading edge, so to speak, of the Protestant Reformation. Now the problem came within Protestantism. So let's forget Roman Catholicism for a minute, come back over and look at what happened to the Reformation. Page 98. Luther, as Luther founded Erasmus, Protestants quickly found great debates internally in their movement. Protestantism spawned diverse movements within a century or two. Jacob Arminius tried to alter classical Calvinism to blunt attacks being made against Reformed theology. The, the attacks that were dealt with here go back to what I just said. Here's what happened. 
the Roman Catholics all over Europe, along with the Council of Trent and so on, all that went with it, started shooting at the Protestants. And here's the bullet they used. You guys are ruining the spiritual lives of everybody on this continent. Because you're going around France, Germany, Northern Europe. You guys are going around here and you're preaching to people in the street and everywhere else that when they're saved, they're completely saved. That their sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. Now you just removed all incentive to live godly lives. See the argument? It's still going on, even in our own circles. Because there are people in evangelical Christianity that hold the same thing. If you get too heavy on the complete salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there won't be any motive to live the Christian life. So let's address the issue of motive right here. Let's look at the motive. If it's really true that at baptism I am saved from the past sins, but not the present sins. Then it means that as I walk through time in my Christian life, I live on a knife edge of damnation. Don't I? Because those sins aren't forgiven. I have to keep getting saved, as it were. I have to keep getting my sins covered, lest I take the step, boom, and, you know... All the, all, the, all the salvation in the past isn't going to count in the future. So, if that's the motivation to live a Christian life, isn't that a motivation of fear? Now, it's true. The Bible says, live in the fear of the Lord. But is it that kind of fear? Is it the fear of God for who He is and respect for His character? Or is it a fear of constantly losing my salvation? And so that was the issue. The Protestant, the original reformer, Luther and Calvin had to deal with this, and they're right on the front end of the Reformation. Their argument was that's not the motivation to live in the Christian life. Where do you read that in the epistles? The epistles are all, the motivation is not fear, it's one of what? gratitude. It's a gratitude because God has saved me that then because I am thankful to Him that I live the Christian life the way I live. So, you see, what looks like a hairy theological thing has a very operationally practical result here. The issue is, is the motivation fear or is the motivation gratitude? And to this day, there are still people who argue that we've got to have a, a little fear here. Because if we don't have a fear, people won't, you know, follow the road. Well, they're partly right in the sense that there is an area in the New Testament epistles that does involve the motivation from fear. But it's not fear of eternal damnation. It's a fear of God's discipline in my life, temporally, physically. And that is in the New Testament epistles. God has a paddle. And he's not afraid of corporal punishment. And there's no social worker that's going to intervene with how he disciplines his children. God can discipline very, very physically. In fact, he can kill us. 
1 Corinthians 11. Every communion service, we read 1 Corinthians 11. What does 1 Corinthians 11 say? It says, for this cause, people have an unconfessed sin, and they let it go, and let it go, and let it go. For this cause, many sleep and are among you. Well, what's he talking about? Not, they're not sacked out in the aisle. They're talking about somebody that physically died. So there's the extreme discipline of the Lord. But it's a discipline not trying to undo salvation. If you look at those passages, like 1 Corinthians 5, it in fact says that God disciplines a person so that he saves his soul. It's keeping the person saved to take him out. So, all this is background for this sacrament issue and everything else. And uh, so, the Calvinists and the Armenians, the Armenians uh, had, were trying to defend what they felt the Calvinists were overdoing God's sovereignty. So they tried to, to make an issue out of volition. Um, the sentence next to the end, first paragraph, page 98, whereas Calvinism saw regeneration as the Holy Spirit overcoming a fallen will, Arminianism saw regeneration as a strengthening of man's natural abilities. John Wesley was famous because he actually modified Arminianism and it came to be expressed in Methodism and its offshoots, the holiness and Pentecostal movements, historically. And that, that's where that went. But John Wesley wasn't really a thoroughgoing Arminian either. He was a mix. Okay, along with the Arminianism came radical departures. If you, one, in our country, what's wrecked Bible Christianity in our country, more than anything else, is the next paragraph. Socinianism. It's led to deism and Unitarianism, particularly in colonial America. Colonial America was not a Bible-waving, Bible-thumping society. There were genuine Christians in it, and Christianity had influenced it. But also embedded in what we call colonial American thought was a lot of deism and Unitarianism. This movement consistently rejected Orthodox Christianity at every point. They rejected biblical authority. Thomas Jefferson rewrote the Bible. They rejected biblical authority. They rejected the Trinity. That's why they call Unitarians. They rejected Chalcedonian Christology, meaning Jesus Christ is God and man. They rejected the judicial accomplishments of the cross. They redefined sin. They redefined salvation. And they redefined grace. Left with the inexplicable universality of human sin, the movement thought of sin as a tendency to follow foolishness that could be eradicated and underline this one because this is still with us politically today. They thought that foolishness could be eradicated by education and moral example. That still, and that underlined a lot of American public education from the very beginning. There was a famous educator, I, I lost the name, because there's three or four of the guys at the beginning of the 20th century. But one of them had a name for kindergarten. You know what it was? The New Eden. Ever been in a kindergarten? Really looks like Eden, doesn't it? Stay in one for three days and see if you think it's Eden. But anyway, his hope was that through education we could improve society. 
But here's something, you, see, this is where study of history gives you insight. What, what's gone wrong here? What's the background for this whole point? Misdefinition of what? Sin. If you've misdefined sin, you'll be a sucker for all the self-improvement programs. Because the self-improvement programs are all founded on a false view of what's wrong with man. They view it as merely foolishness. Is sin foolishness? Yes, it is. Can some of it be restrained? Yeah, sure. But the, the root of sin is not taken care of by a self-improvement program or an educational program. Unless sin is dealt with people, education just makes us sin more effectively. After all, who can murder and kill more people? But people can design bigger and better bombs. I mean, think of World War II. What was the greatest, uh, the, the one nation in Europe that was known for its universities? And who started World War II? So, the whole point there is that education doesn't save and cannot save because structurally it doesn't deal with the sin issue. The gospel does that, and that's being excluded from the public education by definition. So, that's, the, that's why it's bound to fail, and, and you will never find in our society today a public educational system that will ever be successful. I mean, uh, this is not a slam on the poor people trying to make it work. The teachers like Paul McAndrew and other Christian guys and gals that are in there slugging away every day in, in that system, they're trying to just have some education to happen. We've got to have some. But after all is said and done, if there's not a conversion experience with Jesus Christ, you can kiss it off as far as any profound effects it's going to have. Last paragraph on page 98, what happened at this date, very important date, 1054. At 1054, the Eastern churches decided they had had enough. And they left. They did not accept the authority of the bishop at Rome. And so they formed their own groups. And they went, as the outside of the Japhetic European emphasis, the Eastern Orthodox group mixed tradition and scripture as their authority. They hear, adhered to a weaker Christology. Only the Father, not the Son, sent the Holy Spirit. They largely avoided discussion about the judicial nature of the cross work. Why is this? Notice what I said in that sentence. Japhetic European. You see, the European culture is made up of the heirs, the daughters, and the sons that go all the way back to Japheth. And Japheth has a characteristic down through history. He's an organizer. Who built, who had the best organized empire that man has ever seen? The Romans. Japheth. Where did philosophy begin in all the world? Europe. Japheth. Where did law really get refined? Western Europe. Japheth. Now, Japheth does a lot of things well, but he also doesn't do things. One thing Japheth isn't, isn't he, he isn't an inventor. Where most of the inventions happen down through history? Ham. Who invented gunpowder? The Chinese. Hamitics. Who invented the printing press? An ink. The Chinese and the Oriental people. Hamats. Who were the first ones to drill teeth? The Egyptians. 
Hamites. So each one of the sons of Noah has a contribution to make to overall human destiny, but each one does it in his own way. And Japheth appears to his strength is that he's a debater, he is an organizer, and so on. And it's to that end that the gospel went into Europe through Rome, through Paul, and his missionary journeys. Because it looks like that what God the Holy Spirit had in mind, that the church had to organize the revelation that had been given, and he utilized those Japhetic assets to do that. Where has most missions come from? Japheth. So it's just a pattern that you observe in history. The Eastern Church, however, is not primarily Japhetic. It's Shemitic. It's mixtures of Japheth and Ham and so on. And it just doesn't, has never historically shown the strength and clarity of doctrine. Okay, now let's continue. And we're going to summarize on page 99. We come now to the end of the Middle Ages, the Reformation, and we go on to the next emphasis. And that, the next emphasis is what is the purpose and the goal of the church? So now we come, we've come through the founding period, we've seen the rise of the canon, we've seen the doctrine of God, the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Middle Ages, we've seen the work of Jesus Christ. We've seen the issue of faith and how the grace of God is received in man and how people are saved. So, if this is all the background of God, this teaches the church about salvation. And you'll notice something else as you study church history. The issues usually aren't revisited. In other words, the Trinity is the Trinity is the Trinity. We don't teach any different trinity than Luther taught. Luther doesn't teach any different trinity than Anselm taught. Anselm doesn't teach any different trinity than Augustine taught. That doctrine hasn't changed. Once it's, once it's, well, the Holy Spirit has clarified it to the church, it just sticks and that's it. You have heretics trying to oppose it, but the doctrine is, is it, it's, it's matured. And similarly, the gospel hasn't changed since the time of Luther and Calvin. Now, there's been weak versions of it. There's been heretics that deny it. But the, 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 the gospel was clear. By this time, the gospel was clear. So now, then, what's the next stage in history? The stage in which we live from the time of uh, Luther, Calvin, on down to right now. And that's the period we're going to start now studying. And that is the nature of the church and its goal. And this is going to involve several aspects. It will going to involve what is the church? What are the offices in the church? What is the church doing? What is its role in history? Because we dealt with the other issues. So at this point, as the Holy Spirit leads the church to maturity through the centuries, now he's, he's saying, okay, time you guys started learning who you are. Time you guys started thinking about what your purpose is in history. Now, what do we say in the past has always been the method of the Holy Spirit in teaching? What have we observed over the centuries of time, all the way from the book of Acts? What's his primary tool? Pressure. Persecution. Heresy. Because it just seems we don't learn unless we get kicked in the butt. And that's, that's the way we learn. 
You see it in Acts. The church doesn't leave Jerusalem until it's kicked out of Jerusalem. The issue of missions doesn't come up until Paul has to fight everybody to define what missions is all about. The doctrine of the Trinity never got straightened out until you had heretics and Unitarians arguing that Jesus wasn't God. So all that had to be straightened out. The issue of salvation wasn't straightened out until you had a church that became so corrupt that it thought of itself as a dispenser of grace bit by bit that you could pay alms to. And when it got so bad, then finally somebody said, enough is enough. We go back to the Word of God and find out how do we get saved? What is salvation? And that was how we got to here. Now, let's think about it. After the 1600s, what is the major new social institution that arises in history? And before that in history, you had kingdoms and domains, but by 1700, 1800, 1900, now you have the rise of what historians call the nation-state. You have the French Revolution. You have the American Revolution. Finally, you have the Russian Revolution. And all these revolutions involve what we call a nation-state. And the particular, Nazism, Fascism in Italy, all of these movements involve the role of the goal of the human race. After all, what was the appeal of Hitler? Those of you who studied World War II, what was the Nazi program? It wasn't Killing Jews was a means to another end. What was the end of Nazism? The third what? The third kingdom. Now, doesn't that sound a little funny? Where did the third kingdom idea come out of? The Bible. And it was an attempt to bring in a perfect society. It's an eschatological... to conquer the world and bring in the dictatorship of the proletariat. And we would have a perfect society. What was the role of fascism? What is the role of Islam today? The fanatical Islam. To conquer the world and bring in a kingdom. So if you've noticed, the last three or four hundred years, we have been fighting an abortive, heretical eschatology. All these movements are heretical eschatological beliefs. They are beliefs in false visions of where history is supposed to be going. Now that is something primarily new in the last three or four hundred years. And it's those visions that have led to severe persecution of the church. And the church has had to deal with this and is still dealing with it. And the only way the church can deal with it is it answered the question of who God was, it answered the question of salvation, and now the church in the persecuted areas has to answer, what are we doing? What should we be doing? Should we be politically activist? Should we be politically passive? Is the role of the church to Christianize the culture and get it ready for the return of Jesus? Or is it something else? And how do we answer that question unless we have some idea of God's prophetic program? So in the last two or three hundred years, there's been a lot of discussion about the nature of the church, the offices of the church, 
and most importantly, the details of the second return of Christ. It's not an accident. Because God the Holy Spirit teaches by what? Persecution and pressure. So he turns the heat up first in one area, then he turns the heat up in another area, then he turns the heat up in another area. It's useful to this, because I don't know about you, but I can look in my Christian life, and that is recapitulated on our personal levels, because that's how we learn, too. Holy Spirit puts pressure here, and we have to cope with it. He puts pressure here, we have to cope with it. Puts pressure here, we have to cope with it. That's how he teaches us still, on a small scale. But he teaches the church on a large scale that way. So now we come down to the church and the goal, and we really deal here with eschatology. That is, the doctrine of future things. So let's look now, page 99, and we'll see the purpose and the goal of the church. The nature of the church. What is the church? Down the bottom of page 99, it says, Throughout the Acts period and thereafter, the Holy Spirit consistently moved New Testament believers toward realization that they could not be defined by their nationality, they could not be defined by their gender, they could not be defined by their station in life, and they, or any other device. Where whatever the church was, it wasn't an ethnic group, nor was it a political body. Strange thing, this church. Judaism had a definition, didn't it? It was a nation. Under Rome and the heel of Rome, but you ask a Jew who he was, he knew who he was, he's part of the Jewish nation. What do you do about a Christian in Corinth? Gentile, woman. And she meets the street, Stephen, Jewish man, Jerusalem. They're both in the church. What nation do they belong to? What's their politics? What's their gender? Both are the same. So you have all these questions. What is the church? Besides, so, so what do we say? The church basically came to be the community of people who believe something. What they have in common is not their gender, not their race, not their political allegiance. What they have in common is what they believe, the New Testament gospel. So it's the content of doctrine that defines what the church is, or is it the organization that defines what the church is? And that's the first big debate now in this area of the church. Is the church primarily a group of people with common belief, and by belief here I mean belief in a defined body of doctrine, or is it a group of people who have a common organization? And this has gone on for a number of centuries. Let's, let's look, think about one form it takes. Apostolic succession. Now, I don't know about you, but I came out of a highly liturgical church, not Roman Catholic, but I came out of a church that spoke of apostolic succession. Saw itself as sharing with Rome. Apostolic succession. And the idea was that the bishop had been ordained by two or three bishops who had been ordained by two or three bishops who had been ordained back, 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 back to the apostles. So you have this unbroken line of ordination, apostolic succession. 
And the idea was that apostolic succession guarantees the identity of the church. Well, what do you do with heretical people that are ordained then? What about, for example, uh, years ago, Bishop Pike, who was an atheist bishop in Arizona with the Episcopal Church? Well, he, he was in the apostolic succession. He was part of the organization, but I wouldn't say he was part of the common faith of Orthodox Christians. So here we have to take a stand. Is it, Are we going to follow some sort of a succession, organizationally, apostolically, or are we going to follow a common belief? And again, here's the Reformation erupting again, because the Reformation said, we follow the apostles. And the Roman Catholic, you do not. You have broken apostolic succession. You do not belong to the Roman Catholic Church. You are not in succession to the apostles. Protestants said, you're the ones that are not in succession because you don't follow the apostolic teachings. So, bang, here we go. Is it a common organization or is it a common mode of beliefs? And Protestants believe it's a common mode of beliefs. So part of the, the advance here was the church came to see that it's very important to articulate what it is you believe. That's why those councils are so important. doesn't matter who ordained who. doesn't matter what the particular organization has done 400 years ago. The issue is, today, what do we believe and are we part of the community that believe in the historic Christian faith? Well... Not only did that issue came up, but the issue of, uh, on page 100, you'll see, the ordinances. Throughout the foundation of medieval periods, the church continued to be characterized by various ordinances and leadership offices. Oh, by the way, those verses up there, Acts, 1 Timothy, Titus, and Peter, I put there, those are passages in the New Testament where the titles elder, pastor, and bishop are used interchangeably. They are not speaking of three different ranks. Now, in the military, you have ranks. In the Army and the Air Force and the Marines, you have, uh, start out with second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain, major, lieutenant colonel, colonel, and then you get into the different kind of general levels. And everybody has a rank. And that happened to the church. The church started ranking these three names. But if you look back in those passages of Scripture, bishop, pastor, and elder were apparently all the same rank. They're not handled differently. They're all spoken of to be the same person. But that wasn't to last. In the centuries after the New Testament, those three areas became different ranks. And the highest ranking one was the bishop. The bishop came to be the chief pastor, usually of a city. So you had the bishop of Constantinople the bishop of Antioch, the bishop of Jerusalem, the bishop of Rome, the bishop of Carthage. And the guy, all the different pastors get together, and this guy was the spokesman. And they called him the bishop. So now you start to see there's a stratification going on in the church. So that's why we say in the foundation of medieval periods, the church continued to be characterized by various ordinances and leaderships uh, offices which were becoming more elaborate and developed. The ordinances were turned into sacraments. Whereas in the early period, baptism, now notice this, 
In the early period, baptism was administered only after the candidate had been instructed in the faith. Now, it's true that the fathers kept saying that you're, the, the water of baptism washes from sin. But if you read carefully those first few centuries, they instructed people before they got baptized. Well, why were they instructing them if the baptism was automatically conveying salvation? Why were they instructing them? Well, clearly it was because they really believed that the person had to believe in the Word of God in order for this to be effective. Why the instruction? So, what happened later on is baptism in the early period was administered after the candidate had been instructed by the Middle Ages. Baptism had become a sacrament through which forgiveness of sin came regardless of the faith of the candidate. That's how you can have justify infant baptism. Infants can't believe. The Word of God receded into secondary importance to the ritual itself. So the ritual now has assumed primacy. And this is not, by the way, to knock baptism and communion. I don't think we emphasize those enough in our own circles, frankly. Because they're divinely designed rituals that God designed. He didn't say chips and coke. He said wine and bread. Why did he pick those two things? Because there's something in them. There's a, there's a whole heritage of those two foods and, the, and what they reveal in their structure. But, but behind it is the Word of God. It's trusting in the Word of God. Communion or the Eucharist followed a similar path. In the early centuries, Christ was thought to be present during communion in a special way. Didn't articulate it too much, but they did believe in a special presence of Jesus during the communion. But by the Middle Ages, the elements themselves were thought to become miraculously the material body and blood of Christ. Transubstantiation. Meaning that those elements became the body of Christ. His presence was not only spiritual, but it was material. This view led to the problematic result that Christ must be seen to repeat His sacrifice each time the sacrament is administered a view that denies the once and for all complete sacrifice on the cross. So there was a theological problem with this. And finally, the last paragraph on page 100, this changing nature of the ordinances logically connects to a changing nature of the church. Remember what the issue here is? What's the nature of the church? The church by the Middle Ages had become a powerful organization, a state unto itself. It gained much of its political power from its religious power. If the sacraments are the main channels of grace under the control of church leadership, then the church organizationally stands between God and man. Besides baptism and communion, the church at this point had increased the number of sacraments to seven. Here they are. Baptism, the Eucharist, confirmation, penance, extreme unction, orders, and marriage. All of life was now under the thumb of the church. And the problem that Roman Catholics are having right now is concerning one of the sacraments. This is why the, the, the idiots that write in the paper, I, you know, these guys, they, before they commit themselves to writing an article in the paper, there ought to be a rule that they read background material. You know? Do a little research. They're faulting Roman Catholics because the Pope didn't say, kick the bad priests out. The Pope can't say that. Why? 
Because the priests are ordained. And what is one of these sacraments here? All right. So you may disagree with it. You may say, well, they should or they shouldn't. But for heaven's sake, don't sit there and say, gee, the Pope can't do this? Well, why? I mean, it's easy. Just tell him, kick him out. No, it isn't easy. Because they've got a whole doctrinal frame of reference to deal with here. They're not going to deal with that. They're not going to throw them out. They can't. Any more than throw marriage out. Just because we have bad people in marriage doesn't mean you throw marriage out. You have bad priests, you don't throw the whole ordination scheme out. But that's what, if you were Roman Catholic tonight, that's the struggle you would be facing. And I'm not, not messing with it. I'm just saying, logically, A, you know, B follows A and C follows B. And we have people commenting, this, these hip-shooter commentators saying, well, I don't understand why Catholics can't solve the problem. Well, it just shows you the ignorance of somebody that says that. They don't understand Catholicism. Okay. Uh, we'll conclude with a, a top paragraph on page 101. How was the leadership organized? In the West, the Bishop of Rome grew in influence and power. Bishops gained rank over other elders and pastors. They were associated with major cities. Since Augustine insisted on the primacy of the Bishop of Rome and the collapse of the Roman Empire left the Roman Church in a power vacuum that it quickly filled. That's, I didn't finish the sentence. Um, the Eastern Orthodox bishops rejected the claim of the supremacy of the Roman bishops. And that led to the big thing. And in the West, the concept of Pope arose as the Roman bishop came to assume power over secular kings. Notice the footnote. Here's one of the most interesting statements one of the popes made. Pope Boniface VIII, notice his dates, 200 years before the Reformation. And remember, in, when Rome fell, well, the Roman Empire fell, the Roman Catholic Church stepped in and in one sense held Europe together. There was a cultural unity across Europe. Had the church not done that, God knows what would have happened. We'd all be running around lying loincloths. Boniface VIII claimed he was, look at this, a god of Pharaoh, set between God and man, lower than God but higher than man. Now that's classical Roman Catholic theology. And it's logically coherent. You can't just say, oh, well, I don't believe that. Well, all right. But you have to understand where they're coming from. There's a whole edifice and structure here. It's all grounded. The sacraments are all tied into this. There's a whole schema here. And this is why when Luther and Calvin, I mean, if you really grasp what Roman Catholicism is, you say to yourself, holy mackerel, how did Luther and Calvin ever do it? You know how they did it? This is how they did it. They didn't do it. They went to the Word of God. And they said, this is what defines. It is not the Pope. It is the Word of God. And once they said that, it cut, the it cut right through all the sacrament mess. Because now the grace of God comes. Because I trust in God and His Word, and He mediates His grace to me through Jesus Christ. It's not that I demean the meaning of baptism and communion. But I don't need seven kinds of sacraments to run my life. And I don't need some priest, some pope, telling me how I'm going to live my life. This tells me how I live my life. So understand the background for what went on. The, the, the power and impact of the Reformation was like a nuclear bomb, religiously.
and we're still living in the fallout from that. It's an amazing story. So what we'll do next week, we'll carry further on, and if those of you who were here in prior years, back when we did part four, the end of the Old Testament, I had an appendix on millennium, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, and all-millennialism. If you look at that, we're going to deal with a little bit of eschatology and how it started. Now, we're not going to deal with all the fine details. That comes next fall, but right now I'm dealing with the end of church history, our present era, which is a debate about eschatology. And I want to give some background to you on amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, so you'll have the background to understand why some people say we should be politically active. If we are politically active, what do we do? What are the priorities between the gospel and our activism? If we're not politically active, why aren't we politically active? All this is tied in with very practical issues uh, to eschatology. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that you have been busy down through the centuries of time, of just patiently working with the church, working the church into shape for eternity, and building a growing awareness of the authority of Scripture and the necessity of going back again and again and again to the Word of God after we stray after we get involved, after we create a lot of religious baloney, we have to have it straightened out by going back to the Word of God. We thank you that today we have available to us the Word of God and the teacher of the Word, the Holy Spirit. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I uh, have a few minutes of Q&A. Lynn's having computer Q&A right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Donna. Well, I think the sense of wanting that grows out of the fact that every born-again Christian has the same spirit within him. That uh, if, you, if you've never had the experience of going to a totally foreign culture and meeting a Christian in that foreign culture with whom you have nothing in common other than Jesus, um, people who have gone through that experience say it's amazing because in spite of all of your culture differences, all of a sudden there's this tremendous spiritual bonding that takes place between you and this other person. And it's because you share Christ. You share eternal life. And it, it's so powerful that it almost overwhelms these other things. And so I think that's true. I think you have Christians in Church A and Christians in Church B and Christians in Church C. And there's a natural tendency to want to be with each other.
Oh yeah, it's gone on. The church splitting and fragmenting has all gone on. Down through, there's nothing new. It's all counties do that. It's, but what usually stops that kind of fragmentation, although it doesn't always do it, is, is where you have a common uh, hostile culture. Um, if you start seeing, for example, uh, laws passed which state that if you delineate certain sins in the pulpit, um, that's a civil crime, a hate crime. Uh, and the pastor of church C gets arrested, and the pastor of church A gets arrested, and the pastor of church M, I guarantee the churches come together. I mean, a lot more coming together. But the problem that we have in Protestantism in America, and the reason why there's a reluctance to have any organization higher than the local church goes back to a historical incident. And the historical incident, and this is a chapter in church history I wish every one of us uh, would know, because I find this a tremendous ignorance and naivete on the part of evangelicals who sit in church every week. Uh, we don't know our own history and why we're here. And if you could read back in the historical period between 19, uh, World War I and World War II, between those wars, there was a war that went on in this country that devastated the culture more than either World War I or World War II. And at the time this war was going on, it was a war between what was called then modernism against fundamentalism. And there were headlines and banner headlines in newspapers documenting this in the 20s. Um, our grandparents, most of our grandparents, lived through that. And if you have a grandparent that lived through the 20s and the thing, and they were and they're all aware religiously of the culture, they will be able to tell you about what went on because it was headlined for years. And in that modernist, um, fundamentalist controversy, almost every denomination was split. The Baptists were split, the Methodists were split, the Presbyterians were split, and it's ironic that the traditional differences between the Methodists, the Baptists, and the Presbyterians, and, you know, mode of baptism and a few other things about this and that, uh, paled in comparison. You could take a conservative Methodist, a conservative Presbyterian, a conservative Baptist, they would have far more in common than they would with than the conservative Baptist would with the liberal Baptist. Because these guys were totally theologically at odds. And it got economic. I mean, and, and so to explain why there's a reluctance to have any organization dominating the local culture was this. Particularly in the Presbyterians, less or so with the Methodists, uh, less or so with the Baptists but primarily in the Presbyterians. The Presbytery owned the church property. And what happened was, the liberals were very clever how they went through this. They sent guys to Germany to get their PhDs. The guys come to America with their PhDs and they take positions in the seminary. Now what they're doing is they're training the pastors. And so what liberalism did is it in ran 
around the local congregation. So what would happen, you'd have a, a liberal guy take the pulpit of a church, and nobody would know he was liberal because he used the words. Resurrection. Talk about resurrection and Easter. What people didn't realize was that when he was talking about resurrection, he didn't mean physical resurrection. He meant spiritual resurrection. So these guys would get in the pulpit and they'd do their thing. Well, after a while, you know, a few people in the congregation begin to say, wait a minute, something doesn't compute with this guy. And so what they would do is they would uh, go to study Bibles. And that is one reason why the Schofield Reference Bible is so hated by the liberals. Because, you know, the little old lady sitting in pew 52 would be sitting here and she'd hear this guy talking about resurrection. Something didn't compute. So she, she, you know, she wasn't a Bible scholar, but what she would do is she'd go back to her Schofield Bible and start looking at the study notes. And she'd say, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And she'd raise her hand in Sunday school class and say, you know, you say this, but the Bible says this. And start a lot of fights inside the congregation because these guys were getting exposed by lay people who were going to the Stofield Study Bible. And there were other issues that came up. The seminaries. You know, if you ever walk into a, a, a biblical seminary, not too many left, but you'll see a massive investment. You know what it's called? Libraries. Now, in those libraries, there are volumes of stuff that are irreplaceable. You can't get copies. For example, when I, years ago, when I brought in uh, Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, which was the, the work of 1600 uh, Samuel Rutherford in Scotland, and it was his argument against the divine right of kings. That's how they overthrew the king, for heaven's sakes. It was a big, long track. No, they didn't have tracks two pages. They had tracks 200 pages. And he passed that sucker out all over Scotland. And that's what led to the, to this, the opposition of the king. Well, that volume is only found in one place. I think there's only two copies of it or something in America. And it's up here in Harvard Library. Well, now, you lose the library and you lose control of the library. Now what happens to your seminary? Now you've lost everything. So the conservatives lost one seminary after another. I mean, Harvard went down the drain. Yale went down the drain. Um, Amherst went down the drain, and, and Rochester went down the drain, University of Chicago went down the drain, Richmond Seminary went down the drain. I mean, one after another, all in, in relatively maybe 30 or 40 year period. Now, now, the problem was this. The conservative scholars that believed the Bible came out of those faculties, and they had to go down like we have to, to a storefront and start a new school all of a sudden. You know how long it takes to start a new school? like that, to get it funded, to get a library rebuilt. It takes you decades to do this, if you can. And that's what happened. And so the memory of that, now granted, there's a, the baby boomer generation doesn't know anything about this, but the generation, a generation or two ago, the people that ran the churches knew all that very well. And they said, no, no. Uh, the congreg local congregation is going to control the property. Sorry, fella. 
or if the presbytery owned the property, we're going to separate from the Presbyterian church and we're going to PCA or, or Orthodox P or OPC or something like that, where the presbytery are held to doctrinal standards. And then, okay, they can control the property. But people were betrayed. I mean, millions of dollars of property were stolen between World War I and World War II. And the people who lived through that, just like the people you met, lived through the Depression. Now, never forget it. And people who lived through the Depression are always frugal because it created such a lasting impression in their minds of food lines with no jobs. They won't ever be a spendthrift after living through something like that. Well, the people who were Christians, who lived through the defrocking of Machen, who lived through the loss of the seminaries, who saw church properties confiscated, where the liberals would come in, take it over, and say, bye-bye, you don't like it, leave. When they lived through that, they, they, they had a taste in their mouth for years. And it was, we don't trust big organizations. And one of the tragedies that this has caused in our evangelical ministries is that what was also lost beside the, the libraries was the inner city missions. We forget that a lot of the social work done in this country was done by rescue missions deep in the heart of the cities. When the Industrial Revolution came and there was poverty in the cities, it was the rescue missions that fed the poor, that clothed the poor, who had schools for their children. All that was done, all the social work was done by Christians. And then what happened? Then you had the organizations that control the social work taken over by the liberals. What did we just get through saying that Socianism and Unitarianism believe? What do they believe? They altered the programs of the missions. The mission was no longer to bring these people, for example, to teach children to read so they could read the Bible or to clothe people and feed people so they can get a job, so they can support their families. That was all beside the point because now it's not sin. We don't need to preach Jesus. Now we are going to improve everyone with programs. So who took over a lot of the social work? And the Christian missions who remained faithful, what was their problem? They were financed by, guess what? The denominations. So the denomination goes liberal, what happens to the money? It goes down the drain. And so as the missions collapsed in this country, and the social work wasn't being done any longer, guess what steps in? The federal government steps in. And so you have this massive expansion. The government program's got to do this. The government's got to do that. The government's got to do something else because nobody else is doing it. Well, why? A hundred years ago, there were people doing it. Nobody asked the question, what happened to the Christian base? So, when I hear all the bleeding hearts about the church isn't socially involved, I have to laugh at them. Of course the church isn't socially involved. The church was booted out of those areas. The church had its finances cut off. It had its people betrayed. It was basically destroyed by you liberals. And you're the people fussing about there's no social work. You're the people that caused the destruction. You see, it's a little chapter of American history most people don't know about. But it's a, it's a very important chapter in our history. And, it, it, and once you see this, you understand why we meet the way we do, why there's a fragment church here and a fragment church here, because nobody trusts one another. And they remember what happened. Well, I was asking my father, 
The fighting was awful. I mean, there, there, were, uh, there were fist fights. In Texas, there was uh, J. Frank Norris, who was a fundamentalist. And I mean, the press would pick up these stories because there were extreme fundamentalists, the, the guys that just liked to fight. And this guy had a pistol in his office. He kept a live firearm in his office. And some guy came into his office one day from one of the, I don't know whether he was drunk or what happened, but he came in, he tried to assault the pastor. So J. Frank Norris pulled his pistol out and shot him in the office. And so that made headlines all over Texas. And he happened to be the guy who was the leader of the fundamentalists who were against Baylor University, because the liberals took over Baylor University, still control Baylor University. Southern Baptist University doesn't have a clue about what Southern Baptists believe. It just sits on day after day, cranking out liberals. They were the ones who spawned the evolution in the Southern Baptist Convention. And here, J. Frank Norris, when he'd get up in the pulpit on Sunday, he'd send a telegram over to the president of Southwestern, uh, uh, president of Baylor, and said, uh, did you grow your tail yet? And, uh, I mean, there was real nasty stuff going on between the fundies and the modernists. And it, it broke loose one Sunday because June 22nd, 19, no, it was June, I forgot what day it was, but 1922, there was a guest preacher called Harry Emerson Fostick. And he, he was a guest preacher in the Riverside Memorial Church in New York City. And he got up and he gave a sermon that was on the front page of the New York Times and went all over America. It, it was entitled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And it was a, it was a, it was a sermon against fundamentalist extremists who are trying to impose their beliefs on loving, gracious Christians. I mean, these fundamentalists want all the missionaries to believe in the deity of Jesus. Well, now there are some good missionaries out there with social concern. They just can't come to belief that Jesus was really God. But these fundamentalists would throw these poor people, these men, out of their jobs in social work just because they don't believe in the deity of Jesus. And that's the nature of the sermon. So next week, from Philadelphia, Clarence McCartney got up in the pulpit. And his sermon was, Shall the Liberals Win? And that was the squaring off inside the Presbyterian Church of why finally it wound up that the, the fundamentalist professors that were teaching at Princeton, they left the faculty. Then J. Gresham Machen, who was a New Testament scholar. I mean, these fundamentalists, you hear they're stupid. J. J uh, Gresham Machen was the authority on New Testament Greek. He wrote the New Testament Greek text that's still used in seminaries. And Robert Dick Wilson knew 25 languages, Oriental languages. Now, this is the caliber of guys that were booted out of Princeton because of the liberals. And so when J. So, uh, J. Gresham Machen, was, he's a Presbyterian, and he said, wait a minute. We have Presbyterian missionaries overseas that deny the virgin birth. They have, we have missionaries that deny this doctrine, that doctrine, the vicarious atonement of Christ, and I think it, well, I'm going to cut it off. So he got himself involved in the missions administration inside the Presbyterian church, and he started chopping funds off to all the liberals. Well, the liberals heard about that. They came back and they defrocked him, took his uh, ordination away from him, told him to get out of the Presbyterian church, which he did. So, and you can't understand the hostilities that went on for decades over these issues. And frankly, the fundamentalists lost. We had bad press. We were the people that were the obstructionists. We were the people that caused all the problems. The churches were perfectly fine until the fundies come along. 
Well, that's not true. The fundies were the one that perpetuated the theology of the past. I've got a fantastic quote from Christian Century. I've always kept it in a little 4 by 6 card. 1925, the editor of the Christian Century, which turns out to be a liberal newspaper, said, I feel sorry for those who argue with the fundamentalists because they may be wrong, and I think they are, but they're the ones that follow the historic faith of the Christian church. It is we who have departed, not them. Now, isn't that a great admission? But that's the history that we don't know from 1920 to 1930. Uh, now, you can't help but think of the Depression almost being a judgment economically because the Depression happened in 1929, 1930, right after all this stuff was going on. And I've always tied that together, that the economic devastation, God said, okay, you know, you guys want to play games? You have wrecked the churches. You have destroyed my libraries. You have ruined the structure and the infrastructure that supported missions all over the world. So now, baby, you're going to feel what it is. You took the money away from the Christians. Now it's going to be taken away from all of your society. And it was. <laughs> Three years. Boom, 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 boom. It had, what happened prior to that was that Unitarianism and liberalism was always lurking in our country since the colonial times. It's, it's, it's like lurking there undercover. And by 1900s, like Francis Schaeffer said, philosophers start and theologians follow. The philosophers of Kant and others had taken over European universities. Now, where do your most influential educators get their doctorates? They go to Germany. And see, that's another thing about, about the 20th century. You see, it's interesting. You go back in history, 100 years prior to World War I and World War II, what was the fountainhead of theological corruption in the world? Germany. And what was the country that finally got judged in World War II? Germany. You know, it's interesting. You see these trends in history. It may take God a generation or two, but we're paid back for these kind of things. And the liberals had gotten the PhDs. It was top-down. It wasn't bottom-up. It was top-down. And they just started being duplicitous about the way they would speak. I mean, they snookered a lot of Christians into thinking that they were orthodox. And you say, well, how do they sign a doctrinal statement? Same way they still are signing doctrinal statements in these places. I believe in the Apostolic Creed. I believe it was an expression of the first and second century faith of the church. Yeah, I can agree to that. Well, no, that's not what we asked you. What we asked you is, do you believe that the teachings of the Apostolic Creed are true today as much as they were in the second century? Do you believe that? Well, kind of answer. But this is, a, this is background for what was going on, and, and we need to know this because it explains a lot of things you observe about what's still going on. We're still picking up pieces from the 20s, frankly, in this country. We haven't gotten back to social ministries or any other ministries because we were so wounded, so destroyed by what went on 
up until the Depression. And frankly, after World War II, there were only five men in this country that led the, the, the conservative wing. I mean, there were a lot of godly pastors, but you can name them on one hand. Harold Ockengay in Boston, Harold Barnhouse, Philadelphia. Uh, you had the men like Harry Ironside, and uh, what was the other one, Paul, that you, you studied there under Philadelphia? Clarence Mace? Yeah. And, and there was these guys. I mean, you could probably name them all on two hands. And those are the guys that held the line. And nobody else did. And they had to build all over again what had been lost. Keep in mind, what had been lost in the 20s and 30s had taken 200 years to build. That was the fruit of people from colonial America investing for decades, for hundreds of years. And it all went away. And that's why there's a suspicion about structures, about organizations. I guess we better go.